Would you turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2? We are studying the elements of a gathered worship service. Last week, we talked about opening, closing, and then the backbone of all that we do, which is the reading of God's Word. Now, it might be um, kind of logical at this point to talk about the element of singing, um, but the reason why we're not doing that right now is because singing is obviously directly related to music, and music is actually something that the Bible talks about extensively and we've never studied as a church. So when we finish this um, series on corporate worship, we are going to particularly look at what the Bible says about music, and in the process we'll talk about music in, in the gathered worship service. So um, we are skipping that for now, not because it's unimportant, but because we want to spend some extra time on that. So today we're going to consider praying and giving, and not praying and giving in general, but praying and giving as worship in our services as the gathered church. So we've turned, first of all, to First Timothy, which is a letter to a pastor about healthy pastoring and healthy church life. And so knowing that that's the context, it is especially meaningful that First Timothy 2, verse 1, begins with the words, first of all, then. Now, he's not starting his letter, nor is he starting a list. So when he says, first of all, then, he's not saying this is the first thing in a list. He's saying this is of first importance. When the church gathers, this is of first importance, and what he's referring to is prayer. So 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And he goes on to speak of how God desires all people to be saved. So prayer has primary importance for us when we gather. And prayer is worship. Can you think of some ways that prayer is worship? Based on what we've learned about what worship is so far? We've learned that worship is the right response of man to God. So based on who God is and what he has done, is prayer a right response to him? So it is definitely worship. Also, God tells us to pray. And so prayer is worship because it's obedience. Prayer also takes time and energy and focus, which makes it worship. Prayer also turns our attention from earthly things to heavenly things, which is worship. Prayer also shows that we believe God's promises, that we find him to be worth trusting, and so that makes it worship. Prayer also shows that we know that he's God and we're not, which is at the very heart of worship. Prayer shows that we trust God, that we look to God, that we need God, that we depend upon God. We've learned that in the book of Hebrews, the phrase, draw near to God, is a great call to worship. And one of those draw near 
calls in the book of Hebrews is specifically a call to prayer. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence, I think we have this on a slide, do we? Hebrews 4, 16, no, okay, I messed up. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you're worshiping God. We are worshiping God when we come to him with our needs and our requests. And yet that's not all, because prayer is not just requests and needs, right? Prayer is also, there are other parts of prayer. And so in prayer, we speak to God our words of thanks. We speak to God our words of praise, and those words are worship. And then when we gather together, one of the things we do is we pray for one another, and that too is worship. When we, when we pray for God's people, it shows that we understand the importance of God's church and we love God's children. If you're a parent, how meaningful is it when there is another person who actually prays for your children all the time? How much does that mean to you? They don't just say it, they do it. I mean, I, I can hardly think of anything more meaningful than that. So what does it mean to God when we don't pray for his children? <laughs> or what does it mean to God when we focus our attention and pray for his family? That is worship. So for all of these reasons, prayer is definitely worship. And not just private prayer, though that is worship, but First Timothy 2 is talking about the prayers of the gathered church. That is an important part of worship, and this is supported throughout the Bible. So, for example, there are a significant number of important public prayers in Israel's history. We talked about, last Sunday about one of them. We talked about Nehemiah chapter 8, which has this great public scripture reading. But then Nehemiah 9, they went from those, that great scripture reading into a lengthy public prayer. The Levites led the people in confessing their sins as a nation, pleading for God's mercy, and recommitting themselves through prayer. There's a marvelous prayer from King David recorded in 1 Chronicles 29. He prayed this in front of all the people after an offering. It was when they had given so generously for the building of the temple. And part of what he prayed was this, 1 Chronicles 29, 16. Oh, Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. So he's leading them in saying to God, we're just giving back to you what is all yours. And notice the plural, right? David wasn't just having a private prayer moment while they happened to listen in. He was leading them in prayer. He said a few verses earlier, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That's a leader leading God's people in, in united prayer. Another great public prayer came when the temple was dedicated and Solomon led the people in prayer, 1 Kings 8. And one of the things that's fascinating about that prayer is that it's a prayer about prayer because Solomon was emphasizing that the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. Later, Jesus would quote from the book of Isaiah 
and say that God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And we've learned this. Where's God's house today? Where's the temple today? It is the gathered church. So what are we supposed to be when we gather? A house of prayer, Jesus said. When Jesus ascended, well, early, back Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus taught them the Lord, Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? My Father, our Father, right? When Jesus ascended to heaven, his followers went to Jerusalem to wait, and what did they do? They gathered all together, and they prayed. Fifty days later, the Spirit came, and many were saved in Jerusalem. And Acts 2.42 says that those new believers devoted themselves to the prayers. What that means is that as Jews, they had been going to the daily temple prayers. And as Christians, they then gathered together with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they kept going, but now praying in the name of Jesus as the church of Christ. As the book of Acts continues, the most frequent activity of the gathered church that's recorded in the book of Acts is prayer. It is an essential element of gathered worship. So how do we do that as a church? Last week, we talked about how we talked about scripture reading in both the narrow sense and the broad sense, right? We said that in the narrow sense, there's a time in our service, like 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, of dedicated scripture reading. But then we said that actually scripture reading permeates the entirety of our service. It's like the backbone of the whole service. The same thing is true with prayer. Narrowly speaking, there's a set time in the service when we are led in a corporate prayer. Uh, we actually had two of those so far in our service this morning. But broadly, prayer permeates the services and then runs right into our prayer meeting also. So let's start with the narrow sense. There's a set time in the service when we are all led in a united prayer. This kind of prayer is so important that there is a long history in the Christian church of very careful attention and preparation for these prayers. Some of you will know the name Matthew Henry because of his kind of famous Bible commentary. In 1710, Matthew Henry wrote a guide to help pastors lead public prayers. And that guide was republished 30 times in the 17 and 1800s. Isaac Watts also wrote a guide to public prayer. Some more recent authors including Hughes Old and Kevin DeYoung, have, have revived those, kind of written new guides to public prayer. Why, why write entire books about just this? Because it is so important. As Ligon Duncan says, we should scour the language of Scripture to prepare to lead God's people in prayer. What passage did Eric scour when he led us in prayer this morning. Who knows what it was? Who can tell me what book and chapter Eric prayed from this morning? Yeah, Ephesians. Let me know the chapter. Ephesians 3, exactly. Scour the scriptures to prepare. So we can think of lots of reasons why these prayers are so important. They're important because they need to be fitting for the whole church. It's not just a private prayer. You got a whole bunch of people praying along. And so they need to be fitting for that. They're important because we teach. Not that you use the prayer and say, hmm, what do I want to teach through this prayer? But because we inevitably teach by how we pray. We teach about who God is and about how prayer works. These prayers are also important because they're an opportunity for pastoral care. 
you can receive comfort and encouragement from those prayers. These prayers are also important because they are supposed to be unifying. They're supposed to bring us together with one heart, one mind, and one voice. So it's very important that these prayers be intentional and scriptural. This doesn't mean that they have to be long, because actually, once a prayer gets long enough that it's hard for people to follow, you've lost the point of publicly led prayer. So it's not that it's supposed to be long, but careful and thoughtful and and scripture saturated. And remember, we're not talking about one person praying while we all just kind of listen. (laughs) Or we're not talking about one person like a priest praying for all of us. The leader is not a mediator between us and God. What we're talking about is a leader who is bringing us together in a mutual prayer. And so what we want to do is listen carefully and agree as much as possible. It's a good congregational prayer. It's a healthy congregational prayer when, as you listen to it, you keep thinking, oh, yes, that's right. That's what we need, Lord. That's what we ought to pray for. So it's not just one person praying. We're all praying those things if our minds and hearts are engaged with that prayer. And that's why it's very appropriate for you to say amen at the end of one of those led prayers and sometimes even during one of those led prayers. Because by your amen, you're saying, yes, Lord, I agree. That's my prayer too. So that's the narrowed sense of gathered prayer. When one person leads us all in a prayer, and we always have at least one of those in each service. However, prayer should actually permeate the whole service and then continue right into our prayer meeting. So, for example, sometimes our scripture readings are prayers. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case this morning, but it is. There are many times. There are many scriptures that are prayers. Um, many times we have one or more songs that are actually prayers. We are praying together through those songs. And then we come together and we gather in a prayer meeting to pray more directly, to pray more individually for one another and, and for other needs. A few weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's the passage where Paul talks about how when the church gathers, everything needs to be clear and everything needs to be edifying. And he specifically mentions prayer talking about praying in such a way that they can understand each other and that their prayers build each other up. So that's the kind of praying that we want to do when we gather in a, in a prayer meeting where we're praying prayers that are, that are building each other up and also interceding before the Lord for one another. And so first Sunday of every month, which is today, our service includes a prayer meeting. Some people are tempted to view prayer meeting as an optional add-on and just slip out first. Um, And we urge you not to do that. Of course, I'm fully aware that there are Sundays when you, you have to go for one reason or another. But if you have thought of prayer meeting as something that there's like, there's church and the important stuff, and then there's this extra optional thing, do not think that way. It is frankly part of our gathered worship service together when we go into that time of specific prayer. 
So once we've put all of this together, we see that both scripture reading and prayer permeate our entire gathering. We pray through songs, we pray through scripture, we pray with a leader, and then we pray with and for one another. Now, before we move on to talk about giving, I want to touch on one specific aspect of gathered prayer that has sometimes been confusing, and that's the, the, the topic of con- confession and, and forgiveness. So you can turn the page in your notes. Um, I'm not going to try to give all the background. There's a ton of church history here, and I'll, we could spend a whole sermon on this. I'm just going to give two positive statements and two qualifications. So first of all, um, it is appropriate for a leader to lead us in confession of sin. And that's, first of all, because it's appropriate in general for us to confess our sin. Jesus has already paid for it. We are already forgiven at the cross. And yet to confess is to agree with God about it, to say the same thing that God would say. It is to not hide our sin, but to recognize when we have failed and openly say to God, I've sinned. It's appropriate to do that. It's appropriate to ask for his forgiveness and his mercy. Hebrews 4.16 again, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. There has been a, uh, one of the historically traditional parts of a Christian service is the Kyrie Eliason, this prayer of, Lord, have mercy. And it's appropriate to do that. Because when we turn our focus to a holy God, which we do in gathered worship, it's going to remind us of our sin. When we look at the supreme worthiness of God, it's going to reflect back on our unworthiness. And if our service is truly tethered to the gospel, then we are going to know and remember that we are all sinners. Like 1 John 1, 9, we are not going to come and say, I don't have any sin, because we're we're gospel-thinking people who believe what God says. So it's appropriate when we gather to remember our sins and to confess those sins. And the Bible actually tells us that this is worship. For example, Joshua chapter 7 when Achan's sin had caused such a disaster for Israel, Joshua urged him to give glory to God by confessing what he had done. Revelation chapter 16 speaks of those who are facing the terrible plagues of God's judgment, yet it says they will not repent and give him glory. So we have songs of confession. We do scripture readings that include confession. And sometimes we'll be led in a prayer of confession for sin. And I didn't include this, but there are many biblical examples of a leader standing before God's people and saying, God, we have sinned. So sometimes we have that kind of unified prayer. Then secondly, it is appropriate for us to rejoice together in the forgiveness of sin. Obviously, in a gospel-tethered service, forgiveness is always going to be a key thing. So, so if we're led in a prayer of confession, then the leader might read a passage that promises forgiveness, or we might sing a song that celebrates forgiveness, just as we did this morning. It's appropriate for us to rejoice together in the forgiveness of sin. However, we need to qualify that in two ways. Number one, the service is not a unique opportunity to receive the forgiveness of sins. And secondly, no leader or pastor can forgive our sin. And this is important to say just because many people have been taught that when you need to confess your sins to God or when you need forgiveness, then you need to go to church. Because either through confession to a priest or in what happens in a service, 
the idea is that church is where you can receive forgiveness. And that is not what we're talking about. Jesus Christ is the only mediator we need with God. He is the perfect and final priest. And you can come directly to Christ anytime, anywhere, and confess your sins to him. So you don't need to come to church to get forgiven. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying that when we gather as forgiven sinners in as gospel-tethered people, we are going to think of our sins. We are going to be aware of our sins. We are going to confess our sins. We are going to rejoice in God's forgiveness, but not because that can only happen here and not because anybody standing behind this pulpit can forgive your sin, but simply because we are great sinners who, gra- who gather to celebrate a great Savior. So I hope that is helpful on what has sometimes been confusing. All right. We've considered prayer. Let's move on now to consider the worship of gathered generosity. Gathered giving. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13? One of the principles that the Jewish people were always supposed to keep in mind whenever they gathered for worship was that they weren't supposed to come empty-handed. That's those references from Exodus and Deuteronomy there on your sheet. They were supposed to always come with something to give to God. Now, we can't purchase God's love or God's forgiveness, and God doesn't need anything from us. So it's not like... It's not like you're bringing your purchasing power (laughs) to see what you can get from God or anything like that. It's that when something is important to us, we respond with giving. Um, The Bible frequently describes our gifts with words like sacrifice and offering. Um, And the difference between the two is not especially important. Obviously, the word sacrifice refers to something that gets consumed or used up or killed, (laughs) you know, when you give it. Um, But both sacrifice and offering refer to gifts that we bring to God to worship him. So, what did you bring with you to give to God when you came this morning? As you walk through the doors, what sacrifices and offerings did you have along with you? And somebody's thinking, aha, you're trying to make us feel guilty. And I assure you, I am seeking to do the opposite of that. Because whatever came to mind when I asked you that question, I can almost guarantee you, you brought more than you realize. And so I hope that might encourage you. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16 Watch for the word sacrifice here. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such 
sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this shows us two, two of the key aspects of giving and worship. And that's fascinating because the, the word sacrifice there is applied to two very different types of gifts. In verse 15, it's the sacrifice of praise. And in verse 16, a sacrifice of doing good for one another and sharing what you have. And so this shows us that there are several ways in which we can bring gifts to God in gathered worship. I've divided it into just three categories for us. Number one, we gather to worship by giving ourselves. That's Romans 12.1 that we've already talked about. Give your whole self to God as a living sacrifice, which he says is your spiritual worship. So when we gather on these Sunday mornings, we are once again bringing ourselves to God. Your first gift of worship is your life. And so when you set aside these hours of your life to come gather with your church family, that in itself can be a gift of worship. Here I am, Lord. I'm yours. My time is yours. My energy is yours. It's been a hundred something degrees and I do not want to get out of bed this morning. But here I am. Now, you might think, well, that sounds fine, but I'm not anything God would want. I'm a pretty lousy gift. If I'm the gift, I'm a pretty lousy gift. And that is just absolutely not true. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God, there's that word again, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The only lousy gift is the person who comes in and says, I'm so great. I'm so special. Look at me and look how lucky God is to have me. God hates that. That's a bad gift. That's not worship. But the person who comes in and says, I am broken and I am struggling and I have questions and I have sinned and I really need God this morning. That's worship. So we worship by bringing ourselves, our time, our presence, our energy, our participation, our service, our care for other people, the use of our gifts, and even our broken and needy hearts. If you set up tables for a potluck, if you welcome other people, if you play an instrument or teach a class, if you put an arm around a brother or sister and show that you care for them, if you listen to their joys or their woes, Every one of those things is a gift of worship because you brought yourself and you said, here I am, Lord, my whole life is yours. And this morning, I didn't neglect to gather with my church family. So I'm here, weak as I am, to worship you this morning in any ways I can. How can I give myself this morning? So first, we gather to worship by giving ourselves. Second, we gather to worship by giving our words of confession and praise. That's what Hebrews 13 verse 15 says very directly a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's funny to use the word fruit there, but the reason why he's using that is because Israel literally brought a tithe from their fruit to God. 
as a sacrifice of worship and a fellowship offering to him. So we, we bring the fruit, but he says it's the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And that word acknowledge, this is something we talked about a few weeks ago. That's the word for publicly professing your allegiance to Christ, not being ashamed of him, but publicly saying, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I depend on Jesus. So that's what he, that's, there are many types of praise, but he's specifically talking about the type of praise that is public profession of our faith in him. And then, and then we also praise him with our, our words of thanks and our words about God's greatness and our words that celebrate God's goodness and so forth. The point is that all of these words of praise are a sacrifice of worship. And we gather to bring our voices together into a unified voice of praise. Romans chapter 15, verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about this later, but that's part of what's so marvelous about the gift of music. The combination of poetry and music is what allows us to come together and say stuff with one voice in a way that's really, really powerful and honors the Lord. So this is a sacrifice of worship, the sacrifice of praise, not just at home alone, though certainly that, but gathered together, uniting our voice of praise. So giving and worship involves giving ourselves, giving our words of, of confession and praise, and then thirdly, giving our money and possessions. So here in Hebrews 13, verse 16, it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See the word share in that verse? That's koinonia again, the fellowship word that we recently talked about. It's how we, what we share with one another because of what we share in Christ together. So when we give to, to care for one another, those gifts and time, of time and money and possessions are sacrifices of worship to God. See, Hebrews 13, 16 is not just like a parent. Uh, you know, I just saw one of these moms with a shirt that said, what's that line? Like raise good humans or whatever. Hebrews 13, 16 is not a raise good humans verse. Like, come on now, kids, share with one another. Hebrews 13, 16 is using a fellowship word for people who have been brought into Christ and united in the body of Christ and saying, now, what do we share with one another because of what we share in together in Christ? Don't neglect that sharing together. Now, obviously, we can't get into like biblical giving this morning. That's way too big of a topic. But how do we give together? What, what is this gathered giving? And I think there are three, three main ideas in God's word. First, we give together to care for the needy, especially among our brothers and sisters. That pattern began very early in the book of Acts when those first Christians, they were just like, let's make sure everybody's needs are met. What do we need to give? What do we need to do? Let's make sure everybody is taken care of. And, but they, that giving was organized and worked through the church and was distributed by the leadership, which is what led to those earlier preliminary deacons in Acts chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 is what teaches us that there's this priority on caring for those in the household of faith. 1 Timothy 5 teaches us that if there are believing widows with no one else to help care for them, the church should organize support for them. Um, we also see 1 Corinthians 12, many different churches who, who organize gifts to, for 
Paul to take to Jerusalem for the struggling Christians there. So we give together to care for the needy, especially among our brothers and sisters. Secondly, we give together to advance the gospel. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 4 with me? This is a passage that Tom Kendall um, preached on when they were here. Philippians 4. So Paul writes to these the, the believers at the church in Philippi, and he says, verse 16, Even in Thessalonica, so when he was in Thessalonica, you, the Philippians sent me help for my needs once and again. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, First of all, note that verse 17 says the fruit would increase to their credit. He's talking, of course, about the fruit of Paul's missionary labors. And he's saying that that would be to their credit like it was on their account. Their financial gifts to his ministry were an eternal investment. They were actually participating in Paul's ministry. And that was like turning earthly money into heavenly treasure. By doing that. Over in 3 John, when John writes about supporting gospel workers, he says we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You can work for the Lord in Turkey and Lebanon and Uganda and Togo through this kind of giving. And notice in verse 18 that their gifts were a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So our gifts to advance the gospel are worship. And then thirdly, we give together to enable the ministry of the church. The funny thing about this one is, I mean, it's not funny, but is this is the one that for many people seems least interesting. Like church budgets seem boring. Missions is cool and church budgets are boring. Um, but the more you understand the importance of the gathered church, the less boring it gets. And I, I love this quote from Tom Nettles in his book, Praises His Gracious Choice. The securing of the presence of ongoing gospel ministry for ourselves and our children, as well as the lost around us, should be a matter of first priority and approved wholeheartedly as a deeply spiritual activity. And I think once we add like California to that quote, it's even more so. The securing of the presence of ongoing gospel ministry in a place like California for ourselves and our children, as well as the lost around us, should be a matter of first priority and approved wholeheartedly as a deeply spiritual activity. He's talking about the financial gifts that enable the ongoing ministry of a local church. And that's what a church budget is all about. That usually begins with two big things, pastors and a place. And I won't um, go back over pastoral pay because we talked about that in Galatians chapter 6. Um, but the basic idea is that if churches want their pastors, well, churches should want their pastors to study the word and pray and shepherd the flock. 
And if so, they need to support those pastors to make it possible. And so there are several passages in which the New Testament talks about that. The Old Testament pattern was of gifts that support gifts that supported the priests, and then that carries forward into a New Testament. Come on, Tim. A New Testament priority on freeing up pastors for the ministry of the word. Then in addition to pastors, we combine our gifts to pay for a place. Now, we could gather without a place. We get that, right? We could be over at Los Alamos Sports Park this morning. But with great difficulty and great distractions. Because God calls the whole church to gather to carry out his purposes. And so a place can be so valuable. It can enable the undistracted preaching of the word. Because you guys aren't listening to screaming kids on a playground behind me while I preach. It can enable congregational singing with a piano that would be hard to take to the park and other instruments that a, a room that, you know, when you sing outdoors, it's very hard to hear each other, put up walls. And now we can hear each other sing to one another. A, a, a building can give us a place for pastoral study and for counseling, for investing the gospel truth into the hearts of kids in those classrooms up there and back here for hosting Bible studies and and prayer meetings, the several different things that are going on outside of Sunday morning right now. So pastors and a place to meet. And then beyond those two things, our financial gifts go to missions partners locally and around the world, putting Bible study materials in the hands of our church family, outreach events in our community like seminars and Bible clubs. Our gifts go in many different directions for the Lord's sake. And all of that is a sacrifice of worship. Um, quick question, just practically along these lines. Um, it's often asked, is there a New Testament tithe? And the answer is no. The New Testament does not teach a tithe um, like was in the Old Covenant law. What's clear in the New Testament is that giving is not about a calculating a required percentage. Now, the, there's nothing wrong with using the tithe percentage as a starting point for giving, and that's, that might make a lot of sense uh, for a lot of people. But the New Testament principle is, since God has given the greatest gift in Jesus Christ, redeemed people are going to respond with giving financially and in all these ways that we're talking about. And so it's giving that's not motivated by a required percentage. It's motivated by our love for the Lord and the, and the joy of investing in eternal things, right? That concept of turning earthly treasure into what matters for eternity. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided, decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giving, a giver. So giving comes not from compulsion, not from a requirement, but from a transformed heart. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have to... It, do, it doesn't necessarily mean that we just do whatever comes naturally for us, like we don't be intentional about it. Because remember, Hebrews thirteen sixteen said, do not neglect to do good and to share with others. Because the tendency of our heart, just like we tend to neglect gathering together, even though we know it's important, but we also tend to neglect generosity. We slide um, naturally toward selfishness. So we do have to be intentional about it. But the point is that there's not a sign on the door that says, Hope you brought your 10%. The point is, these are people who have received the greatest gift, and that's why we're here. And from that heart is going to come generosity. Tom Nettles again says, The restoration of praise to the heart 
focuses our love on God and his glory. This new affection unlocks our feverish grasp on money to pursue instead the cause of God and truth. What's he talking about when he says the restoration of praise to the heart? He's talking about how God, when he saves us, takes us from being idolaters and makes us into worshipers. He restores us to our place as people of praise and people of worship. And when God does that, that unlocks our feverish grasp on money and sets us free to joyfully, joyfully give. Okay, so we've learned that giving is part of our worship gatherings and that we give in several different ways. So back to the question, what did you bring with you this morning to give? We got a fuller answer now, right? You brought yourself, we know that. See you. You may have come in brokenness and in weakness, and you don't think you're much of a gift, but if you've come in humility, if you've come because you need God, then you are a gift of worship to the Lord this morning. And then at any point today, will you open your voice and sing? That's a gift of worship. Will you speak to another brother or sister in Christ and care for them, encourage them? That's a gift of worship. Are you going to do anything that serves this church family and allows these Sunday gatherings to happen? Those are gifts of worship. Are you going to participate in the prayers, follow along as the leader prays, and amen with your heart? That's worship. All those things are ways in which you come and bring yourself as a gift of worship. And then, did you bring your words of praise? Did you rejoice from your heart in some of those songs? Regardless of whether you sing well, regardless of whether you knew all of those songs, if something in your heart said yes and you you sought to participate, that's a sacrifice to the Lord. Did you bring literal material gifts to help provide for others, for the advance of the gospel, for the ongoing ministry of this church? See, I hope I'm encouraging you. Now, maybe it's convicting too. Because maybe you've been coming to church with a mindset of, what can I get out of this? What can this church give me? Do I like what this church does for me? And maybe you're realizing you've kind of had it backwards. But even then, I hope it's encouraging you to realize how much you actually have to give. You might be brand new to Christianity, And so when you come, you feel like you're way out of your league and you don't know what's going on and you don't know where to turn in your Bible. And, or there may be really hard stuff going on in your life, or you may think of yourself as a person with nothing, but in God's kingdom, it doesn't work that way. You have yourself to give your neediness, your energy, your time, your care for others, your words of thanks and praise, and your financial gifts proportional to how the Lord provides for you. Every one of us has a lot to give and God takes that whole spectrum of kinds of gifts and he uses the word sacrifice for all of them. It's all, it's all worship. Tom Nettles again says, uh, giving can be celebrated as one of the most profound aspects of the restoration of praise. Do we have that quote? Or did I forget that one too? Ah. Giving can be celebrated as one of the most profound aspects of the restoration of praise because Christ saves us when we are people who worship ourselves. 
And when we worship ourselves, we are so selfish. Everything is about me, me, me. But when Jesus rescues us from our sin and gives us new spiritual life, one of the most obvious and profound evidences of that change is generosity. We stop asking, what can I get? And we start asking, what can I, what can I give? So we've talked about praying and we've talked about giving as a gathered church. So I'm going to close with a, a little charge and encouragement from the Lord. Um, and then we will, um, I'm going to give you a minute to pray. And then the piano is going to play for just, um, just a couple minutes while we transition into prayer meeting. And then Pastor John's going to come um, and lead in the beginning of our prayer meeting. So these final words from the Lord. First of all, Acts 20, verse 35, which records that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then this encouragement from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So let's take a moment and think on these things, pray about these things together before we finish.